Thanks for clapping for me, everyone, when I came up. It's really, really thoughtful. Um, <laughs> I love that song. Uh, Andy Gullihorn was the name of the artist. Just really great musician. Um, and his example of a, of a well-worn hat is just so funny. It, it reminded me of uh, a friend of mine in college when we went shopping for jeans together one time, which I guess sounds kind of weird. But anyway, um, he, uh, he went... We went to the store and, you know, there was like a discount pair of jeans for 50 bucks, which is, you know, like still really expensive. But um, my friend was looking at them and, they, you know, they were like intentionally worn out, kind of like how the song's talking about. And I don't know if that's still cool or not anymore because I'm, I'm getting old. But at that time, that was kind of cool. And, um, and uh, the salesperson came up and said, oh, these are a great deal, these jeans, only 50 bucks for these. And my friend said, I'll tell you what, I'll take them for free and wear them out for another two weeks so they look even worse than they do now. And I'll sell them back to you for 50 bucks. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad some of you thought it was funny because the salesperson didn't really think it was that funny. But, um, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a funny example. Uh, it's also just kind of, it's profound. I mean, uh, we long for the authenticity that comes with something that looks well-worn. Uh, but uh, so often, and I'm guilty of this too, we, we are scared off by the hard work that it takes to actually get that. Um, so we look for a way to short circuit it uh, or to buy it that way, right? And we, but we all have this desire to, to live uh, a well-worn life and to have well-worn jobs and to, that mean something, right? That tell a story uh, that kind of transcend us. And we, we want that, but we're so easily scared off by the commitment and the challenges that, that meaningful things often demand in life. And uh, we want those things, I'm convinced, because God created us for them. We are created uh, to have purpose in our lives and and to have lives that transcend our own basic uh, needs and wants. And we're supposed to do more than survive as human beings. We're supposed to build things, right? Or the things that matter, things that last, uh, things that communicate something true and beautiful to the rest of the world. We long for that. And in many ways, this This is exactly the purpose of the Christian life and the Christian mission. And even Jesus compares following him, being a disciple of him, he compares it to a building project in Luke chapter 14. And uh, he says there, he who, I'm sorry, he says, who builds a tower? This is his metaphor for the life that follows Jesus, right? This is his own metaphor. Who builds a tower without counting the cost? He's talking about the Christian life. And uh, we're called to be builders and to create something, to, cont- to contribute and serve in our society and in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in our families by God's design. This is what we're supposed to do. But as Jesus points out in this image, this kind of work always comes at a cost. It's always hard work. And Jesus' warning in Luke is truly about the danger of starting something that you can't finish. So Jesus says, count the cost ahead of time so that when you find that doing work with me when you find that the Christian life that you've been called to isn't easy, that it's hard, you aren't surprised. And listen, we're, we're all called by Jesus. If, 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 um, if we're taking him seriously, we're called by him to be builders and to work and to sacrifice for things that really matter. Things like our church family and our cities that God's put us in and our neighborhoods and our families and our marriages and in our workplaces and in our schools, wherever God has put us. And we're called by and empowered by Jesus uh, to, to be a faithful presence in every area of our life. And that's, that's the Christian mission. This is at the heart of, what, of who we want to be as well at Christ Community as a church. This is who we want to be. 
We want to be builders. We believe that the foundation of Jesus, who he is, his life, death, and resurrection, that building on that foundation is the only work project worth doing in this life. Uh, But if someone told you that when you entered into this Christian life, if someone told you that this life was easy, that uh, it came naturally, uh, that you wouldn't encounter major challenges and opposition in this Christian life, and I hate to say it, but somebody, somebody lied to you. But here's the good news. The good news is we are not alone in this. We're not alone in this. Uh, and we're looking at chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Nehemiah uh, this morning. If you haven't turned there yet, uh, go ahead and do that now. Uh, don't be afraid to use your table of contents. It's okay. It's not a book we look at a lot in church, so I get that. Uh, and these, what we're going to find is that these chapters are a good reminder about the work we're called to do and how we're to go about doing it. And uh, this part of Nehemiah teaches us, if you want to be a wall builder with Jesus, this, this, these chapters teach us three things that we all will encounter as, as wall builders with Jesus. And that, that's this. Here are the three things. First, that hard work awaits us. Second, that big challenges confront us in this work. And then finally, that supernatural resources are available to us. So that's, that's where we're going this morning. So first, as we think about this Christian life and what we're called to do together, we see that the hard work awaits us. There's simply no way around it. And Nehemiah's story is the case in point for this. And, and if you were here last week, we met Nehemiah at the beginning of his book, and he's a single man. He's Jewish. Uh, he was a palace slave to the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. And uh, his hometown of Jerusalem had been leveled to the ground about 140 years earlier. And it's still a place very much in, 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 uh, in a state of chaos and, and broken. And God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to do something about it. And brokenness, if you remember, compelled Nehemiah to pray and to weep at first and then to trust and to work. And, and that's really the story of chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Nehemiah. And we talked about how similarly in the Christian life, when we encounter brokenness uh, in our world, it, it should compel us in some way as, as people who follow Jesus to do the same to find something in life, to bring a little light into the darkness, to work for the good of others, and to build a life that matters. And for Nehemiah, it was very specific what he was called to do. It was rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem. And without walls, right, it's, this makes sense. In, ancient, in the ancient world, without walls, the, your people are completely vulnerable to whatever may be on the outside. And uh, because of this lack of a wall, the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were, were subject to horrible oppression and violence and racism and greed at this time. Uh, They were a means, these walls are a means of protection for them, but they're also a really powerful symbol for Nehemiah in Jerusalem that God is with them, that God is protecting them. And part of what Nehemiah Nehemiah wants to do is is convince these people again that God is with them. He's still there. And uh, so uh, Nehemiah leaves his cushy job in the the capital of Susa, and he goes 1,100 miles uh, back to Jerusalem to build a wall, to build a wall. Now, if Nehemiah is at all like me, and he's a really strong biblical leader, so he probably isn't, but if he were like me on this 1,100-mile journey, uh, I wonder if he was dreaming about how great this wall was going to be. If on the whole way there, he's thinking, man, this is, this is going to be great. Now, maybe he wasn't thinking that, but he was, if he was like me, he was. And uh, my wife and I, we're wannabe DIYers, which is a, a do-it-your, do-it-yourselfer, a DIYer, if you never heard of that. And uh, we're wannabes, because we're actually not very good at it, but... Um, we, we, you know, we kind of approach project, projects, we're starting projects all the time of, of, of you know, refinishing that or doing this. And uh, those, <laughs> they always start off so great and they always end the same way. So we st- take a step back from what we've done and we kind of go, man, that looked a lot better on Pinterest than it does right now. Um, 
But and maybe Nehemiah was, if he's like me, he was thinking about how great this was going to be when he got there, how nice the materials would be that were available to him and, and how beautiful the finished product would be, and he was dreaming. And if he was thinking that, I'm sure he, he stopped thinking it right when he arrived in town. Because in chapter 2, when Nehemiah finally gets to inspect the walls that he's supposed to rebuild, it's so bad that, that his donkey can't even navigate around. There's so much rubble and debris on the ground. And the gates that are, you know, these symbols of protection are completely incinerated all around the wall. And the limestone is, is half burned and most of it's not even usable again. And at the end of his tour, right when he gets there, he kind of looks at his pals who are, who are touring with him. And he's like, we're in a lot of trouble. This is going to be a lot. Of, he realizes right away, this is going to be a lot of work and it's going to be really hard work. And it's one thing, right, to say, to look at a space and say, man, a wall would look really nice here. But it's something completely different to, to hunker down and start laying one brick at a time. <laughs> but uh, by God's grace, and, and we touched on this last week, that's exactly what happens at the beginning of chapter three, which is where we are this morning. So take a look at chapter three. Um, I'd read some of it to you, but most of these names I can't pronounce. So just look at chapter three. Um, it's a really unique chapter. It's, it's really a, it's a list of names and projects that they're doing. That's really all this chapter is. And uh, the Jews split up into teams and they, they each kind of get their own project and they go to it. And these projects have names like, you know, they're rebuilding the sheep gate or the fish gate, the gate at Yeshana, and, and on and on it goes. And there are even some brave folks, if you were to read this, some brave folks that volunteer to, to work at something called the dung gate, which just <laughs> sounds really terrible to me. But there's a need there, and they go and they do it, and I think there's a lesson in that too. Um, but to just give us some perspective on, on the, the scope of this project, because it's often hard to get just from reading the text, I wanted to include some slides here. Um, you'll see uh, with this kind of the city proper here that's, that is still walled, but everything to the left of that, where all of these people live, uh, the, the wall surrounding that is completely broken. And that's what Nehemiah is working on. So all of these people are vulnerable. And uh, there's several gates listed around the area that are, and those are incinerated, need to be rebuilt. And uh, there's another perspective, uh, kind of top view. And uh, you'll see this big green area uh, surrounded by a dotted line. That's the part of the wall that Nehemiah is rebuilding. This, that, that wall is, is totally useless at this point. And uh, it's two and a half miles of wall enclosing 220 acres of city. So this is a big project. It's a big project. And we'll see in chapter four that the Jews have to work double shifts from sunrise until the stars come out, which is kind of dangerous at the time to work in, into, the, into the night hours. But they have to do this. And this is only to build half a wall around the city, which is all they can do at first. Eventually they'll complete it. But at first all they can do is, is get half of a wall up. And uh, as we look at chapter 3, I, or, there are several principles we encounter in chapter 3 about a life of, of, on God's building project and uh, about the hard work that awaits us as Christians that I don't want us to miss. And, and uh, so I'm going to give these, these three principles to us, and, and I'll show you where I'm getting them uh, from the text as we go. And the, the first principle we, we encounter here is that hard work, right, is hard to do, uh, but it is not hard to see. It's not hard to see. And uh, there, are, there are a few examples in chapter 3 of people who, who don't work, people who kind of opt out of building the wall. But there's nobody in this chapter that looks at Nehemiah and says, hey, we don't need a wall. It's, it's obvious that the city needs a wall. The need is so clear, and it's so fundamental to, to, to the thriving of an ancient city. No one's arguing. This need is in their face. It's right there. So let's get really practical with this principle today. So one of the first questions we have to ask as Christians when we encounter 
uh, or evaluate our context, whether it's serving in our city or in our workplace or in our relationships, right? There's work to be done. One of the first questions we have to ask is, well, where's the real need? Where's the need? And uh, that seems like a very obvious place to start, and you're like, well, I could have thought of that on my own. Um, but uh, we often, we often uh, ignore the answer to that question when it's daunting. It's like, well, what do you really need? Well, we really need this. Okay, well, what else do you need? Because that sounds really hard, um, right? We look for another one. And, and, and just an example, in our, in our city, say we're, if we're serving in our, in our city, and many of us in this congregation are placed in ways that we can really serve Kansas City in the metro area. Um, you know, serve where there's need, not where you can get recognition. And not where it's easy, but where there's a, where's, where's the need? Don't ever feel above the needs of the place where God has put you. You're not above the needs. Your reputation, your comfort, whatever it is, those are not walls worth building. And in fact, uh, you see it in our text. Uh, there's only one group of people who don't help build the wall, and it's the noblemen of Tekoa. And if you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 5. Oops, turn back. Chapter 3, verse 5. It says this, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And it's like, ouch. That's their legacy in the book. <laughs> they would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's all they're known for. And, and we as Christians, we have even more clarity on this. We know Jesus stooped down from heaven, left the glory of heaven to, to become a human being and live among us. And we can stoop and serve the needs of our community. So where's the need? Not where's your need, where's the need of this place? And how does your placement, how does your gifting, how does your context, your job intersect with it, regardless of how you might benefit from it? And uh, you can think about this at, at church too. There are lots of places to build here at this, in this church. And, uh, but volunteer where there's need, not just where you feel comfortable. And uh, Alan touched on this a little bit. Uh, don't, don't ignore your gifts and your passions. Th- those are important. You need to know those. But how easily we let those things become excuses for ignoring a blatant need in our congregation or in our lives. So, if you look back at chapter 3 of Nehemiah, there are lots of occupations listed in chapter 3. So, it's lots of names and lots of, like, here's what they did professionally. And uh, if you were to read through this, you'd, you'd see a lot of them. They're priests, they're perfumers, they're rulers, they're servants, they're goldsmiths, uh, lots of different jobs. There are, there are only a few that you, you don't encounter. You, you never meet a carpenter. You never meet a stonemason. You never meet a professional builder at all. Not one professional builder in this whole bunch. So no one in this story is in their comfort zone. No one's like, yeah, I really know what I'm doing to build this wall. Um, but there's a need, and the need is so strong that expertise really isn't relevant. It's like all hands on deck. We need you here. And Christians, we aren't called to be comfortable. We're called to be helpful. Big difference between those two things. And, and here's, here's an example, and, and, and Alan mentioned it already, but every summer uh, we struggle to get volunteers in our, in our children's ministries. And I, don't, I say that to condemn no one because I, I get it. Summer is an awkward time to get volunteers. It's an awkward time to serve somewhere. Uh, sometimes you're traveling a lot. But summers, summers are hectic, and, and there's a need here. And uh, if you're around this summer, consider volunteering in children's ministries, whether it's you know, through VBS, like Alan mentioned, or even just on Sunday morning volunteering for three months, just one season. And I think we could all agree there's hardly more important wall building to be done in our church than investing in our children. It's important. So get in touch with children's ministries if you're interested. 
And I know some of you are thinking, but I'm not gifted with kids. That's okay. We've got a team here who will support you in that. But there's a need. God always calls us to where there's need. Okay, I've already spent too much time there. So second principle um, we learn here is that the work is hard, but it's not usually hard to get to. The work is hard, but it's not usually hard to get to. And uh, the Jews are not in a position to rebuild the whole world. Though there was plenty of need in the world at the time for them to do something like that, they, they weren't in a position to do it. But what they could do was rebuild the wall of their city where God had put them. And they saw that as their primary responsibility. And uh, we can get even more specific if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 23. And this is just one example of this dynamic in this story. Uh, after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their own house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And on and on it goes, people building right outside their wall. There's, there's work to be done in Jerusalem. But it's, for the most part, it's right outside these people's doorsteps. It's right there. It's hard work. It really was. But it was not hard to get to. Get to. And uh, I bring this up because as Christians, and maybe even if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about engaging in, in, the, in uh, the common good of our city, um, we sometimes think of serving uh, our world and, and giving back and building as something that happens far, far away. And to be sure, uh, there is tremendous need in our world that we have responsibilities for, that we can be praying about and, and giving financial resources to. But by God's design, the primary places for most of us to work and engage are right next to us. So it's your family, your job, your city, this church. And, and so the question is, are we building capacity for these things first? Are we creating space financially and professionally and with our time uh, to, for the immediate context we find ourselves in? Right here. And uh, Pastor Tom's our senior pastor. He got a text last week uh, after his sermon on Nehemiah from someone in the congregation. I just love what this person had to say. She, she texted him and she said, I am the one who longs to go out and rebuild big walls. But sometimes the harder calling is to stay at home and tend to your own. And it's like, yes, that's so true. Sometimes it's a lot scarier and harder to do. Uh, but that's, this, you know, it's, it didn't take a burning bush for this person to realize what she needed to do. She didn't need a burning bush. She, she looked around, she saw the need, she took action. So if you're in a season of parenting right now, that's kind of your context. I, there's freedom in that to say, raise your kids well, lead your family well. That is wall building. And it's really hard work, right? And maybe you're a student. I mean, thinking about different seasons of life, maybe you're a student. Then study well. That's where God has put you. Think about that context. Where can you serve there? Because that's where God's put you. That's your primary responsibility. And the key here is, is, is learning to think about what we do every day already and who we see every day already. How can they become a part of God's building project in your life? It's not about finding a new place. It's about seeing your old place in a new way. That's what God's calling us to do. No one can tell you what these things are, where you need to engage, where you need to give your time. I can't do it. No one can do that for you. You have to, you have to think and pray about it. Uh, but don't worry, when you find it, it will be hard work. <laughs> You're not, no, no worries there. But it shouldn't be that hard to get to. And then the final principle from this text about the hard work that awaits us is that it's hard work, but it's not lonely work. It's not supposed to be anyway. It's not lonely. And as we've noticed before, there are a lot of names listed here in Nehemiah chapter 3. 
And uh, scholars have actually had a hard time figuring out why would Nehemiah spend so much time writing down all of these names in this book. And uh, the best conclusion they've come up with, and I think they're right, is that he just needed to show how much of a team effort this really was. So he thought of, you know, he thought of everyone that worked on this project and he wrote their names down. And there's something else kind of funny, unusual about this chapter. So these people, when you really get down and, and read about who they were, they are a completely random group of people. I mean, sure, they're all Jews, but they're priests, they're women, they're children, they're old, they're young, and they're all working together to rebuild this wall. And there's this constant refrain in chapter 3 of, and next to, next to him stood so-and-so, and next to them stood so-and-so, and next to them. It's like this wall-to-wall people all along this project working for one common goal. And they, they must have kind of looked ridiculous doing this. Um, and we actually, I think we, we, it's safe to assume that they did because in chapter four, there are these two hecklers that we'll, we'll get to uh, later who, who look at them and say, what is this group of feeble Jews doing? So it's like, what unifies them? What brings these people together? What, when, and, and if you, st- you pause and think about it, two things, God's salvation and God's call on their life. These are a part of God's covenant people. They're saved by grace through faith and what he's done. And yet they are called and empowered by him to be on this rebuilding project in the world. And listen, when you think about that, that's the church. That's us. That's still true today. If you look around this room, right, the different people here, think about all the churches across the country that are meeting today. Think about churches across the world meeting today. What, what brings these people from different countries and races and generations from every walk of life? and different, What brings these people together? It's the good news. It's the gospel. And in a lot of ways, it's our weakness that brings us together. And we all believe. If you're a Christian, you believe. You've confessed that we are so feeble. We are so broken. We are so useless. That God needed to die for us to be saved from sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we, if, if in, in church, in many ways, is a community of people brought together by how weak and how truly feeble we are. And Paul the Apostle, he makes the same point in 1 Corinthians. He says to Christians for all time, now, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. We are fools rebuilding a wall. That's who we are. And despite our weakness and our frailty and our failures, we go out and we build in our city and in our families and in our jobs. And if we're doing it right together, it should confuse people. Because it's like, why do these people know each other? <laughs> why are they hanging out? What, what brings them together to do this? And I remember uh, when Becca and I once went to Kansas City for a first Friday, we went with another couple from the Leewood campus. And we went into this first Friday, which if you haven't done, is amazing. It's a lot of fun. You should check it out. Um, and, uh, during, you know, so we're down there in the Crossroads District, and there was one kind of booth set up. It was like a photo booth. And went in and got our pictures taken, and it was fun. And there was this young woman working at the booth, and she handed me our pictures. And she was like, oh, are these your parents that you're with? <laughs> and uh, as an aside, this is just good advice. If, if you see a, a young couple and an old couple together, don't shoot with, hey, are they your parents? Um, it's, it's kind of, it's like, it's in the same vein as when you first meet a woman, don't ever shoot with, hey, are you pregnant? It's just not a good idea. Um, makes people feel bad. Um, anyway, so I I look at this girl and I say, no, 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 we're, we're friends. And she was so confused by that. And I saw the look on her face. It was like, why are you friends with someone who isn't in your generation, who isn't in your season of life? That makes that she had no category for that. And we live in a world that has no category for that. Um, 
And if she'd had the guts to ask, but she didn't have the guts to ask because she was embarrassed, but if, if she'd had the guts to ask, I would have said the church. The church brought us together. That's why we're friends. That we have more in common in the gospel of Jesus Christ than we have uh, separate from each other. And uh, we're a group of people centered around Jesus and our mission to serve in this world, and we need each other. We cannot do it alone. It's too hard. And when we work together, especially when we work together in ways that defy definition, now the world notices. Because we're fools, we're weak, and we're random. <laughs> but God accomplishes amazing things through people just like that. He does it for Nehemiah's day. He still does it today. Now, sometimes uh, the attention that God's people get when they're on a building project like this is very positive. But there are other times uh, that are equally common where it's negative. Sometimes the church steps on people's toes and they get mad and they oppose what's happening. And uh, this is exactly what happens to Nehemiah and the Jews in, in chapter 4. And this brings us to our next uh, main point, is that hard work oasis as Christians is the first. And then second, big challenges confront us in this work. Big challenges. And uh, really all such challenges in the Christian life can, really, can fall into two categories. There's, there's external opposition and there's internal discouragement. It's true for Nehemiah, it's still true for us. So for Nehemiah and, and his, his motley crew, the uh, external opposition that they encounter is, is very specific and obvious. It's Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ashdodites. These are groups of people mentioned, and individuals mentioned by the text itself. And uh, just for a little context, history tells us that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Tobiah, it is, it is believed, held high office in the land of Ammon, which is just east of Jerusalem. And the Arabs is really this group of countries that are east and south of Jerusalem. And the Ashdodites were the major people group to the west of Jerusalem. So if you're paying attention, there's opposition immediately from all sides. And these people, these are people that had major interests in the region and were thriving on a debilitated and insecure Jerusalem. And the second Nehemiah and company come in and, and begin rebuilding, it's a threat to them. It's a threat to their power. So let's read a bit from chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And uh, they're getting bullied. They're getting made fun of by these guys. And we had a Bible study here this summer that was going through the book of Nehemiah. And they had a, a book by a woman named Kelly Minter who was helping kind of lead the discussion. And she hits the nail on the head with this. She says, these two guys, Sam Ballot and Tobiah, are like the old guys from the Muppets, you know. <laughs> and they just, they just stand off to the side. They contribute absolutely nothing. And uh, all they do is make fun of all the other hard work that's happening around them. Um, and uh, that's a helpful way of looking at them, but you have to realize they're much more powerful and much crueler than those. And at first, they, uh, they just don't, they don't take Nehemiah's job seriously, and they, so they make fun of it. And, and who could blame them? I mean, we've talked about this. This is a ragtag group of people. And uh, their words probably had just enough truth in them to be hurtful. This is not a strong group of people. This is not a glorious wall that they're building. This is not a numerous people who are doing it. And uh, by any worldly assessment, uh, if you looked at this when they started this project, you would think this thing is doomed from the start. 
But despite these words, uh, the Jews keep building. And in verse 6, Nehemiah says, So that we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And uh, this is an important dynamic in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah does not try to defend himself to these people at all. He does not directly address them in this story at all. He is so confident that he is doing God's will, that he is, that he is fulfilling the calling on his life, that he remains silent. He puts his head down and he keeps working. And in verse 6, suddenly the project is half over, right? They've got half a wall, which is incredible. Now, we don't always know we are, we are so solidly in God's will. And uh, sometimes we make mistakes or we're outright disobedient in our lives and we suffer consequences for that. And that kind of opposition is, is God's grace to protect us. But there's, there's another kind, there's a legitimate kind, where we, we are legitimately doing something good and we're opposed for doing it. That happens in the Christian life. Especially, I've noticed, when God begins to bless the endeavor and when progress is made. Then people take notice. And uh, I was talking this week with someone out at the Hope Center, which is one of our fantastic ministry partners. And if you're not familiar with what they do, I encourage you to check out their website. Uh, They're doing amazing rebuilding work in Kansas City. And I mean that in every sense of the word rebuilding. Um, and part of what they're doing is they're, they're revitalizing an inner city neighborhood by restoring the homes there, creating value there to, to help generate economy there. And uh, we actually helped them do this last summer as a congregation. Um, we helped build a, a home there and, uh, we, to refurbish a home. It's an awesome organization. Anyway, I was talking to this guy, and uh, he was telling me how when they first started with this vision to kind of flip these houses and create value in the neighborhood, a lot of people just didn't take the idea very seriously. I mean, there were too many obstacles, too much in the way, too much capital was needed to get started. But once they started making progress uh, by God's grace, uh, the power brokers in the neighborhood came out, right? It came out of the woodwork and started to oppose them. And uh, from, from confronting drug lords who don't want nice homes in that neighborhood because they thrive on the disability there, uh, to uh, banks who were just uncomfortable even going to the neighborhood to give loans. <laughs> um, they were opposed by the status. I mean, they were challenging the status quo and it wasn't going well. What they were doing, what they're still doing is God's work in our city just like Nehemiah, and it's often just leads to outright opposition. It happens. And Nehemiah's accusers don't just say mean things, and do, they, they actually plot, they, they plot an attack on Jerusalem. If you look at verses 7 to 9 in chapter 4, it says, And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So now the Jews aren't just being ridiculed. Uh, they're, they're terrified. These are, these are not soldiers we're talking about. These are not even contractors we're talking about. These are normal people. People that have a lot, you know, have a lot on the line. Normal people threatened by a trained army. And this led to incredible fear throughout the building party, I'm sure, and it also led to incredible discouragement. If you look at verse 10, you know, right after we hear about this, suddenly from within, it says, in Judah it was said, in verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And this is the second kind of challenge that as Christians we encounter on a building project. It's not just what happens outside externally, it's internal discouragement and exhaustion. And uh, who could blame the Jews for feeling this way? I mean, they had worked hard. They were only halfway done. They're surrounded by people who think that, that who they are and, and what they're doing is completely wrong. 
and their lives and their families and their homes and their livelihoods are literally on the line. And uh, the Christian life, the Christian building project is, is often, it often feels this way. Whether from external opposition or discouragement or just sheer exhaustion, we're tempted to give up and stop. And we often think that just getting something started is the hardest part of doing something. Uh, but Nehemiah's story teaches that it, it, though it, it's true that it takes courage and strength to start something new, to do something you know is right, it takes a whole other kind of courage and a whole other kind of strength to see it through to the end. When Becca and I uh, were getting ready for the birth of our daughter, we were, you know, really focused on the labor, obviously. And, and that's not a bad idea. Labor is this really intense and scary and uh, just crazy time. But uh, once we made it through that part, and by we, I mean once Becca made it through that part, um, <laughs> we were like, man, that was really hard. But, whew, right? We did it. We were ready for a victory lap. And, and it's like no one told me, no, 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 that's just the beginning of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, having a kid is hard work. It, you know, it, it looked like it, um, right? I mean, I, I guess I can't speak from experience. Having, you know, delivering a child is hard work. Raising a child, right? Totally different kind of courage and strength involved. And some of you may be feeling this in your lives right now. Maybe your marriage or your job or your kids and some situation at home has got you close to hopeless, right? You, just, you don't know how to persevere in it anymore. Or maybe you're fighting a temptation in your life right? That keep, you, you feel like you're fighting a losing battle. You feel like you're not, you're, you're, you don't have victory there. Or maybe you're uh, working toward and, and desire change in our world. You have a vision for something that's good in this world, but the challenges and the obstacles are just so big, you don't know if it's even possible anymore. And whatever it is, it's, it's overwhelming and it's exhausting and you're just discouraged. And it feels like the wall is always going to be half done. It's never complete. It's never safe. And, and and we all feel discouragement and opposition like this. Uh, but this is crucial. Don't get discouraged about being discouraged. Because being afraid or tired or disappointed is not a sign that you're failing. It is not a sign that you're unspiritual. Uh, just because you are in God's, you're in God's will, you're fighting the right battle, you're building the right wall, whatever metaphor you use, does not mean that it will be easy or fun or comfortable. See, we're, if you're in Christ, you're a child of God by faith. That's what the New Testament says. But as the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, God had one son without sin. That was Jesus. But he's never had a, a single child without trial. Okay, part of our calling in Christ is to suffer. And it's just a natural consequence of being broken people working to redeem a broken world that often does not think it needs fixing. And Sinclair Ferguson is a Christian author. He puts it so well. He says, faith in Christ does not remove all the causes of discouragement from our lives. Rather, it enables us to overcome them. Big difference between those two things. And, and how exactly does that happen? How does that work? Well, this is our last point this morning. In God's building project, we are, we are weak and frail. We cannot do it on our own. But we have supernatural resources available to us at all times. And you see this theme throughout Nehemiah's entire life. Somehow, despite all the challenges they face, despite Sanballat and Tobiah and all these people and everyone else who will continue to be a distraction, really, almost throughout the rest of the whole book, uh, the text says the wall is finished in 52 days, right, in chapter 6. And this, it's incredible. And how in the world did these quote-unquote feeble Jews pull this off? 
If you look at chapter 4, verse 15, you get a clue. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And then jump down to verse 20. In the place, and this is Nehemiah giving a plan to the people. If, if an attack should come, he says, here's what we're going to do. And here's how he ends his little, his little pep talk. He says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there because our God will fight for us. Incredible mission statement. <laughs> sure, Nehemiah, he makes a good plan for the defense. He does. He, he makes a good plan to rebuild the wall. He's a gifted administrator and a gifted leader. But he knows that this project, these challenges, his plans are, are they're not enough. <laughs> if God does not show up and fight for them, it does not matter what happens. It doesn't matter what he does. I don't know if you've noticed, but at every turn for Nehemiah, when the people are opposed or discouraged, any time it looks like the wheels are coming off, Nehemiah turns to God in prayer before he does anything else. Every time. When verbally threatened, we read about that, Nehemiah says nothing to Samballot, but prays to God for his defense in verses 4 and 5. When threatened with a fight, right, Nehemiah sets up a watch, but before he does that, he prays to God in verse 9. When attack looked imminent, Nehemiah arms the people to prepare for war, but he does not ask them to remember a battle strategy. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome in verse 14. You see, we all encounter times of discouragement and opposition and challenge, and if you're a human being in this world, that is a given, right? We've all felt that. The difference that faith makes in those moments is where you look for help. Do you look within or do you look up? In Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, it puts this so well. I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So where do you look in those moments? And this dynamic makes the Christian, wall, Christian building so much different than any other kind of building project in the world. Because we're part of something larger than we now imagine, as was Nehemiah. And that's, that's why we pray before we do anything. It's not simply to ask for courage and for power to do what we cannot do. It's a reminder when we pray that this is not ultimately up to us. Thank goodness it's not up to us. We are building, we are working, but it's God's wall. He's in charge. It's his story. And unfortunately, when we encounter discouragement in those moments, we often think God is disappointed with us. And that's why we're failing. But I th- what, I want is, what I want to encourage us to reframe that as we think about this text is, is how might our attitude change if instead of thinking God is disappointed with us, that he's condemning us, instead of thinking that, what if we remember he's fighting for us? What if we remember that he has gone ahead of us that he's already in the battle before we even know it exists. That he's already preparing a way out before we enter in at all. Christians, we're in the business of building. It's hard work. It, it presents constant external and internal challenges. When we enter those times of discouragement and exhaustion, we're tempted to, we're even trained to by our society to rack our brain and to inventory our resources and to put a plan together. But for Nehemiah and for us, action must never proceed, but always follow God's lead. He's already there. He's already fighting. We're empowered by a king with all authority on earth. 
And Nehemiah uh, could, could have combated Sanballat with his letter of approval from King Artaxerxes to build this wall. I mean, if you were here last week, don't forget, Nehemiah is sent to Jerusalem with a letter from the king of the empire saying, you are legally empowered to do this work. But Nehemiah never pulls that out and shows that to Sam Ballot. He, he never uses that as a, as a defense against what's happening. Why doesn't he do that? Well, because he knows he is spiritually empowered by the king of the universe, the creator of all things. He knows he will fight my battles. He is my true defender. And we are empowered, you, me, Christ community. We are empowered not by an earthly king or a government, not by a person in a capital city a thousand miles away, but by a king who is near. He's next to us. He is among us. He is ahead of us. He is behind us. He fights for us. He empowers us. And his promise, he promises to never forsake us in, in the work he's called us to do. And if you've been a part of our congregation for a while, you know this is a part of our story. God, God fights for us. The story of this church could not happen without God's intervention. If you've been here for a while, I want to stand here and thank you for wall building with us. It is a privilege to be here with you. I mean that. God is honoring it, and I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. And if you're on the fence about Jesus or about our church, about spirituality in general, if you're, if you're wavering, I, I want to invite you to join us because we, we want you on the wall with us. God's doing amazing things here. And we want you to be a part of it. It's the only work worth doing, I, I promise you. And anyone who's been here for a while, if, if you're new here, if you, if you were to go up to someone who's been here for a while, uh, they would tell you, I'm sure, that, that we are really nothing special here at Christ Community. At the end of the day, we are nothing special, but we serve with and build with and are empowered by or defended by an awesome God. That's our story. And he's the, his is the only building project worth doing, and that's what we want to be a part of. Let's pray to him now. Father, we are humbled by your empowerment and your promise to never leave or forsake us when we're discouraged, when we're opposed, when we're hopeless. God, we also know that it's only by the work of your son Jesus that we're, that we're empowered and called to do anything at all that through his work we become your children and, and we become agents of the transformation you're a part of in this world. So God, give us eyes that see where the need is and help us respond in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.